These days, consumers are willing to pay top dollar for items that are labeled organic and free range. The luxury to trust that food made by companies is truly healthy for us and our families is something that we take for granted. And it's a relatively new concept. Believe it or not, once upon a time, all of our food was considered organic, healthy, untainted, because everyone had gardens of their own and knew exactly where the milk and cream was coming from. There was no question if that was really pork cooking on their stove. But by the middle 1800s, the nation was growing rapidly into massive cities and people navigated toward them in search for work. New York, for example, grew from a town of 33,000 in 1790 to more than 600,000 by 1850. With the expansion of cities, that meant that it swallowed up the pastures, farms, and gardens. The thousands of people pouring into the cities looked to the stores and industry to provide their food. It had to be readily available, filling, inexpensive, and convenient. The Industrial Revolution was changing the world in commerce. Factories and the need for it to take on food production requirements and creating a mass market of goods became a necessity. And when I say goods, I use that term loosely. The manufacturers needed ways to be able to produce large quantities to distribute, but also be able to package and sell it before it went bad. Or did they? What the consumers don't know won't hurt them, right? All I know is that somewhere down the line the definition of quality got a little blurred and the trusting public had no idea what they were eating and the path to make it right, despite death, deception, and conspiracy took over a decade. So how did we go from our free-range lifestyle all the way to chemical additives in our food that was so detrimental that thousands died, and then back again? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. Food is a pretty important thing. I think we can all agree on that. And people, no matter where they lived, have struggled with food preservation. Historically speaking, when someone is nomadic, they can gather food as they go and only take what they need. But when people decided to stop wandering and build community, a stationary homestead, creative aspects were put into place to preserve food safer rainy day, or surviving the harsh, unyielding temperatures of winter, or even waste-not-want-not. We needed ways to get the most from our hunts and our gardens. Americans are fascinatingly persistent and are usually game for trying something new. How else would we have discovered that 
For example, even though this milk product has been sitting out for several days, we should taste it and see what happens. Or, what would happen if we completely submerse our fish in our beer and leave it there? Or, that bottle of wine. You know, the one that went terribly wrong? Maybe it might taste better if we add these cucumbers. Let's just try it and see what we get. No, 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 no. Let it sit in the closet for, I don't know, maybe six weeks? Or, we think it's perfectly acceptable to give our babies milk from a completely different species, but think sharing human breast milk is disgusting. Now I can see how they came up with the idea, like if the mother passed away and the new baby needed milk to survive, but then who decided, hey, we can market this stuff. Everyone should drink this. Okay, so I'm not calling into question the process of how we have come this far from our quote-unquote primitive ancestors, but only the curious practices that come from being curious. And thanks to someone being brave enough to try rancid milk often enough, in various degrees of rancidness, we now get to enjoy cheese in many varieties, not to mention an entire collection of rancid milk delicacies for every palate. And as a personal fan of pickles, I thank you, you curious person who dared to try those cucumbers soaked in vinegar for over a month and let the rest of us unbrave humans know how delicious they turned out to be, I thank you. In case you don't realize the debt of gratitude we owe to these brave experimental souls, let me briefly go over some of the ways our early American ancestors used to preserve food, and that will give you some context about how we have come to enjoy some otherwise questionable delicacies and how others made things go terribly wrong. As we have discussed in our episode on moonshine, which was episode 29 if you missed it, every culture has its input on fermentation. I discussed in that episode that the water supplies were pretty sketchy and oftentimes it was a necessity to rely on wine, cider, or ale, each a different version of fermentation resulting in varying beverages. Fermentation is basically a form of controlled spoilage. It's the conversion of carbohydrates, sugars, and starches into alcohol. And it's not just for beverages. It is considered one of the oldest methods of food preservation known to date. Fermentation not only made it possible to use the food over a longer period of time, but also more flavorful and sometimes even healthier for you and more digestible than it was in its original condition. And no, I'm not just referring to grapes. It wasn't long before people figured out how to use this process for other things like sourdough bread, vinegar, salami, cigars, and even ketchup. Fermentation went on to perfect a pickling technique. Pickling is preserving foods in vinegar or other acid. Vinegar is, and this is the short answer, produced from starches or sugars. It is fermented first to alcohol, and then the alcohol is oxidized by bacteria into acetic acid. Wines, 
beers, and ciders can all be processed into vinegars. Then, the vinegar is used to create new taste by covering the foods with vinegar, adding a lid, and let nature take its course for a matter of months. Obviously, pickles come from this method, but also onions, fish, mushrooms, and olives, and any number of other daring combinations. The Native Americans that were already here when pilgrims began to arrive introduced their skills of dehydration, which is essentially removing moisture from the food. They used the process of naturally drying out meat, fish, and nuts in the sun or by adding smoke to add flavor and quicken the process. And when I say quick, it still takes a matter of days, sometimes months, to perfect the right smoking techniques. This, of course, has been expanded to all manners of fruits, veggies, herbs, and spices. By drying their foods, it eliminated the need for a lot of space. So, for example, when the Indians would go on their hunting expeditions, it was common for them to disassemble the buffalo or deer on location, only returning to the village with strips of meat, dried skins, and organs. Same with the pilgrims traveling the Oregon Trail. It was much easier for the strips of meat, fruit, and vegetables to be dried as they took up less space, would last longer, and didn't weigh the wagons down. Because for them, they were trying to bring as much food as was needed for the entire journey since there was no quick stops or drive throughs along the way. The fruits and meats could be eaten dried or added water to rehydrate for cakes and puddings, stews and soups. Fruit and meat were the primary items, and they really didn't start experimenting with drying vegetables until way later. The early Americans also used salts for curing their meats for preservation. Fresh meat was rubbed down with salt for several days, and once the meat was dry, it would be washed down with a salty brine, and would apparently be good for several months following. In doing research for this episode, I happened to chat with a man who was waiting with me at the DMV office. He was 94 years old. He was such a great source for conversation and about authentic food preservation and homesteading. He talked about how his family would kill a hog and the best meat was from the first night or directly after. He hated having to eat the salted pork because he said you couldn't really taste the meat, just the salt. And the longer the hog was preserved, the more it started to rot. But, since he was from a family of six children, nothing could be wasted. They could only afford to slaughter a hog every once in a while, so they had to make sure to use as much of it as possible. He said, There was never anything left when it was chicken night. They cooked and ate everything. On to Aspic. Aspic is essentially a savory jelly that was created to encase meat and seafood within a protective layer of gelatin. The goo helped to keep the oxygen from rotting the meat, and then when added to water or broth, it added more flavor to the soups or stews. And confit, sometimes referred to as meat biscuits, also relies on shutting off the oxygen away from the meat. The meat is slowly cooked by baking, submerged in its own fat, cooled off so the fat forms a solid layer all around the meat, 
and then sealed in a container. Sometimes they would add flour and seasoning so it was easy to turn into a stew or just heated up and eaten. And if you're a fan of biscuits and gravy, that came from this type of method of preserving the ground meat and they cooked it into patties, stored in crocks, and layered with the rendered lard. You'd scoop up the patties with fat and then use them to make the sausage gravy. Then the additional lard provided fat for the biscuits. There's also a fruit version of this which replaces the fat with sugar water. Canning is the process in which foods are placed in jars or cans heated up to a temperature that destroys microorganisms and inactivates enzymes. When they are later cooled, it forms a vacuum seal. The vacuum seal prevents other microorganisms from recontaminating the food. No one really knew why it worked or how it worked, only that it did. Which of course makes me continue to wonder how they knew to try that in the first place. They only knew that having food exposed to air was a bad thing. So by removing air and protecting their food, it lasted longer. The final common form of food preservation is, of course, cooling. Most would make use of the streams or caves nearby, and others learned how to extend the use of ice or snow when the seasons brought it along, while still others dug root cellars or just shallow pits to keep food protected from the elements and the slow process of decay. Even today, you'll find root cellars and cooler lower rooms in basements are a popular alternative for people who put food up by all the various food prep options. Ice boxes became popular in the early 1800s and eventually the refrigerators were available in about mid-1800s. And that about sums up the general topic of food preservation. Am I the only one that wonders how these options came about? As I mentioned before, who woke up one day and decided to put meat into a jar, soak it with fermented liquid, and let it sit in a dark room? More than that, when they pulled it out to taste it and decided that it was disgusting, they opted to put it back in the jar for more time instead of tossing it out. Who decided that six weeks of disgusting was going to suddenly make the soaked fermented meat a delight? So, just me then? Hello listeners, we're Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. We are now completely at home with the idea and implementation of food preservation, right? I do have a great deal of respect for our ancestors, especially those who were part of the Taste Testing Rancid Food Committee, and I am super grateful that I can, one, swing through a drive through or stop by a grocery store and grab my food preferences for the day, week, or month, and then also that I have means to keep my leftovers fresh and I have more options for future meals with little or no inconvenience. That being said, if you have not reached that level of gratitude that I have, keep listening. There's a few other food prep styles I think you might be curious to know about. Some really, 
really old and some not very old at all. Take sodium hydroxide, for example. You may know it better as lye. Lye is corrosive. It will burn the skin, stain fabric, strip wood, cause blindness, eat through clothing, cause painful sores, and cause lung damage. But it was also used for making soap and sometimes even food preservation. By adding lye to foods would make them too alkaline for bacterial growth and change the fat in the food. What foods typically use lye? Lutefisk, hominy, some olives, and century eggs. I don't even want to know what those are, but I do know that they have been instantly taken off of my to-try list. Even the makers of lye caution those who would use it as food preservation as one subtle miscalculation can result in a dangerously toxic meal. Irradiation. Yes, you may be able to decipher from its name that this is the exposure of food to ionizing radiation. This process is used to kill bacteria, mold, and insects or other pests. It is used to both reduce the ripening of the fruit and the spoiling. It's sometimes called cold pasteurization. They say that the process is not related to nuclear energy, but they also say that it may use the same type of radiation emitted from radioactive nuclides produced in nuclear reactors. The facilities in which these processes happen are heavily shielded and the workers have to work with intense safety precautions as ionizing radiation is hazardous to life, and within that same breath, the facility insists that there is no harm in consuming food that has gone through the process. And that may be, but, interestingly enough, there is no agreed-upon international regulations. It goes from no regulation at all to full-on banning the process. The report that I read stated that about 500,000 tons of irradiated food items are produced annually in over 40 countries. These products are usually spices, condiments, and fresh fruits. Which, begs the question, would it still be considered fresh fruit once it's been through an x-ray machine? You know how when you eat those salads from the ready-made bags of salad, they don't taste quite right? They look the same. There's a nice crunch and you recognize the flavor of lettuce, you think. And yet, mm, allow me to introduce you to modified atmosphere. As we now know, oxygen is usually the culprit for the spoilage of food. So chemists wondered, what if we took out the oxygen and replaced it with another gas, like maybe nitrogen or carbon dioxide? Carbon dioxide is the popular choice for this method. It can kill organisms through hypoxia and hypercarbia through fumigation. And so while the salad in the bag looks and crunches the same, it is free of organisms, but also free of its once healthy nutrients. Using this method seems to kill the vitamin contact. Grains are also preserved this way. Dry ice is used for this method. 
A block of dry ice is placed at the bottom of the can and the grain is poured over it. The excess gas is removed from the can and it's sealed preventing insects, mold, and oxidation from spoiling the grain for up to five years. And again, the facilities claim that there are no adverse effects from human consumption because all of the gases are found in nature and the body can safely absorb them. This is where I'm not supposed to mention that this logic can be applied to lots of things found in nature, but that doesn't always mean we should ingest or absorb them into our bodies. But I'm not going to mention that. I'm going to throw in jugging into this section just because it's gross and questionable too. This process has been around for centuries, possibly right up there with fermentation. But jugging is when raw meat is chunked, smushed into an earthen jar, and then preserved by stewing it while inside the jar. Sure, that's gross all by itself, but then you pour a brine or a gravy, and then the animal's own blood over the meat chunks. This is when the sealed jar is set in the dark to ferment further, and when it's ready, however many weeks that is, the entire concoction is cooked while still in the jar. Mmm, <laughs> And since we're on a roll, let's examine the origins of potting. You know those potted meats you love so much? The spam fans of the world, you are going to love this. In all fairness, this is not the way factories prepare their potted meats anymore. But you may never look at your can-shaped meat the same way again. Potted meats came about so that none of the pieces and parts of the animal would go to waste. <laughs> Let me repeat that. None of the pieces... So, first, they would simmer or bake the meat until it was cooked through, and then they would also heat up the earthenware pot. Whether they realized it or not, they were essentially sterilizing their storage container. Once the meat is cooked, it was added to the pot, and before the fat could completely cool, it was poured over the container of meat. When it cooled down, creating that wax-looking layer, the top was sealed, and the pot was stored in a cool, dry place for however long. So here's the scary part. While they might have believed that they were killing the microorganisms with the heat, they were also creating the best kind of environment for botulism to grow. It loves tight, dark places with little oxygen. And if you do eat the food containing this dangerous toxin, it will go from difficulty breathing to your face muscles drooping to complete paralysis. Bon appetit! You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people, just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. 
and now I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now, real history, not just the dates and battles, and I've discovered that others do too. So I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. We need to keep in mind that there was no FDA in the 1800s. No one knew why people were getting sick and were dying. No one knew that food industries had turned to chemical alternatives for new ways of food preservation. But at that time, no one really knew what they were doing. It was all trial and error and at the cost of the consumer. Copper sulfate was used in food that needed to look bright and green. Think pickles or canned peas. Arsenic added to the food coloring made candies look slick and shiny. Coffee was blended with sawdust and ash to make it go further. That's not so much of a preservation thing. That was just a, an extension of product thing. Meat, canned fruit, and vegetables, butter and cheese were doused with boric acid, salicylic acid, or sodium benzoate to delay the bacterial growth and rotting. Formaldehyde, borax, salicylic acid, the, the list goes on and on. People had no idea what they were eating or drinking. Milk, for example. Some companies would dilute their milk with water. Street vendors would sell unfrigerated milk that caused a spike in cholera, tuberculosis, and scarlet fever outbreaks. They would add plaster of Paris or chalk to give the milk a more pure white look. And some that advertised that special layer of cream on the top, they were actually guilty of adding a layer of pureed calf brains. In the 1880s, an analysis of milk in New Jersey found that, quote, liquefying colonies of bacteria, end quote, to be so numerous that the researchers simply abandoned the count. So what happens when you mix fermented spirits with milk? First of all, you get a partnership that makes money hand over fist. And second, you get what became known as swill dairies. During this time in the 1800s, dairies were beginning to set up shop next to breweries. This became a brilliant way for the breweries to increase their revenue by feeding the cows the used mash. The cows would be strapped in, think a giant cow-sized baby harness attached to a hook in the ceiling, so that the cow's feet were barely supporting them. 
the breweries would send their swill over to the dairies to feed the cows. Swill is the residual from the brewing process. So it's the mash, the corn, grains, barley, and whatever other ingredients that was added to water, then boiled down. The liquid goes on to create the brew. Then the leftovers, they decided it would be enough nutrients for the cows to still produce milk. And it was. And they did. The milk was weak but plentiful. For some reason, the diet of the warm mash doubled their output but decreased their lifespan, some only living for a few months. So now the milk was tainted and the cows suffered immensely. They were confined to a small stall for the rest of their lives. Once they were too weak to stand, and even after they died, the harness would hold them up until their bodies would produce no more milk. The mash diet made the cows so ill their hair and teeth would fall out, their skin would be welted with sores and insect bites, and they would be standing in inches of their own manure. The manufacturer would then add the chalk or plaster of Paris to hide the blue tint that the swill produced, plus sorghum for sweetness, starch, and eggs for a thickener. By the 1840s, people had been convinced that swill milk was good for them, that milk was the perfect food, and that it was pure country goodness. According to the rural New Yorker, swill milk counted for three-quarters of all milk sales in New York City in 1852. On May 8, 1858, Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper ran a series of illustrated articles about the adulterated milk. He depicted the activities of the farm in hundreds of drawn images. Leslie's paper characterized a group of Brooklyn and New York distilleries as milk murderers who had distributed liquid poison to the unsuspecting masses. He writes, quote, For the midnight assassin we have the rope and the gallows, for the robber the penitentiary, but for those who murder our children by the thousands we have neither reprobation or punishment. They are licensed traitors, and through their traffic is literally in human life, the government seems powerless or unwilling to interfere, end quote. It was such a huge moneymaker that the aldermen would cover up the scandal and even go so far as to claim that the swill milk was healthier and that the deaths were caused by other things. Have you sworn off milk yet? Well, maybe this will do it. Have you heard of the embalmed milk scandal? You thought New York was bad with their swill milk, but Indiana was holding their own with the milk death race. Many deaths and illnesses at the time, mostly children, were referred to as summer complaint and shown symptoms of upset stomach, diarrhea, vomiting, dehydration, and even death. It was being traced back to the milk they were consuming. These dairies, too, were guilty of thinning out the milk with water, only to add flour, chalk, and other items to create some kind of new specimen. It wasn't until a milkman delivered his bottle of milk that wriggled to a woman because he thinned his milk out with stagnated water that grew bacteria and worms that a formal study was begun in the local dairies. 
In late 1900, John Newell Hurdy, Indiana's chief public health officer, wrote about the details of his study in the Health Department's official bulletin stating the discovery of sticks, hairs, insects, blood, pus, and manure were found in the milk. These scathing words from Hurdy caused the dairy farmers to treat the problems with formaldehyde. Yes, that chemical that's used for embalming corpses. Someone, again, not sure how or who got voted in to test it, but someone discovered that when you add formaldehyde to milk as it's going bad, it covers up the rancid taste. Formaldehyde has a sweet taste, apparently, so no one realized they were feeding spoiled milk to their babies. While it succeeded in killing bacteria, it also succeeded in killing hundreds of babies. Not just in Indiana, but formaldehyde was also discovered in other dairies as well. It took until 1862 and thousands upon thousands of deaths to finally regulate the milk and adulterants with legislation. Pasteurization, while discovered in the 1850s, was not utilized in the United States until 1930s. That's a lot of milk. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Aisle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com merch now to check things out. In 1898, America was up to their neck in the Spanish-American War. Instead of using cattle that could be purchased in Cuba for the soldiers' rations, the Secretary of War, Russell Alger, decided to support the meatpacking corporations from his hometown of Chicago. Three major packing companies were quickly issued with the task of canning meat and sending it to Cuba. Most of the meat, upon arrival, had already begun to spoil and were scraps of the cheapest and oldest cuts of meat. Some chunks of meat had already been used to create a gravy, so the meat was boiled down to get the juices. Then they took the used-up beef, added it back to the cans, injected it with formaldehyde, and sent it on its way. There was meat encased in fat, and it was only after they started to eat that they discovered the meat was already decomposing. The men were being affected by yellow fever, which presented the same symptoms as the rancid canned meat, that the situation was overlooked for a very long time. At home, in the States, it wasn't much better. The meat industry was unsanitary to say the least and didn't care about labor laws, contamination, diseased carcasses. If it fell into the vet, it became part of the process. Rats were even sometimes added to the sausage grinder. On purpose. The packing industry would use borax washes and salicylic acid to make the meat appear pink and healthy to help cover up the mold that was growing on the carcass. Finally, President Theodore Roosevelt sent in a team to do an investigation. Even though the plants were given a heads up and were able to clean up the area a bit, there was still just too much damning evidence. I guess the staff didn't get the memo about the inspection because meat was still being picked up off the floor, a worker cut his finger and then continued to work, blood missing, appendages and all. It was enough that Roosevelt could no longer ignore the situation. 
and more on that in a moment, but first I want to introduce you to Harvey W. Wiley and his Poison Squad. For over a decade, Mr. Wiley had been trying to get the attention of someone, anyone who would listen to his findings in the way the food industry was conducting business, but no one could be bothered. It's a tribute to Harvey for the discovery of borax, formaldehyde, salicylic acid, and more was being used in foods and falsely advertised. He was a chemist and devoted years of his life to the study of the food industries. In 1902, finally he was granted permission, thanks to the whole Spanish-American canned food debacle, to do a full-blown human study to decipher if the additives and adulteration to these foods had any real effect due to human consumption. Oh, adulteration, by the way, is defined as the addition or subtraction of any substance to or from food so that the natural composition and quality of the food substance is affected. Food is declared adulterated if the substance is added which depreciates or injuriously affects it. So in 1902, the Poison Squad was created. Wiley sent out an ad for young, healthy men who had strong stomachs to receive $5 a day, three meals, and all they had to do was only eat the meals they were fed and be subject to all kinds of tests and questions. Wiley wasn't exactly sure what he was looking for, so he collected tons of data. The 12 men chosen for the study ate their three meals a day, and within those meals, a poison was hidden in small doses. Many of the manufacturers claimed that the chemicals they used in their food weren't harmful for human consumption. But what if someone chose to eat that particular food on a regular basis? Even if the companies used a smaller amount, how would the body react? He discovered that there was a cumulative effect to the toxins and poisons. The more a person ate, the sicker they would get. As he suspected, the chemicals made them ill. Only half made it to the final round. All but two had to leave the program due to the severity of the illness, but none died. Wiley wrote, quote, The chemical and physical data were vast, but the lesson they taught was unmistakable. Preservatives used in food are harmful to health. End quote. The politicians tried to make him the laughingstock. Roosevelt refused to support him or even hear his data. In Wiley's battle for the benefit of the human people, he became the most hated man among the food industry. And, for the moment, the food industry seemed to have won. Wiley, however, refused to give up. He discovered a lot of support from the newspaper and the people, especially once he connected with the women's suffragette movement and the labor unions. His views, tests, and studies became well-known. They created the pure food movement. Finally, on the Senate and House floor hearings, data in hand, he was able to take the stand and suggest a new food safety bill. Wiley said, quote, The consumer is entitled to know the nature and substances he purchased and to be sure that their food is pure and wholesome, end quote. In 1905, President Theodore Roosevelt puts a recommendation of a bill for the food law regulations. 
1906, the Meat Inspection Act was passed, followed by the Food and Drug Act on June 30, 1906. Roosevelt signed them both into law. The people won. A lot has changed over the years in our regulations and as far as using chemical substances in our present-day food, oh, they're still there. The reactions may be different, slower deaths, multiple versions of cancer. So again, as before, people don't realize they shouldn't be eating certain processed foods. Or maybe they do, but it's just too convenient. Thank you for joining me again this week. If you could take a moment to subscribe to Bag of Bones on your favorite podcast platform, it lets you know when a new episode comes out so that you won't miss a single one. And while you're there, if you happen to leave a five-star review, I'd be very thankful. Your reviews would help me to know what you would love more of. Plus, it helps us get in front of new listeners. The more the merrier. I hope you'll join me again next week for a brand new episode. I'm Elizabeth Bougere. Until next time. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.